yeah, 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 yeah. We got episode 30. We're talking COVID-19, the impact on long-term care facilities with Dr. Digidio and Dr. Fung. Let us do this. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Karamantang. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Episode 30 already, crew. It's crazy. Time is flying, and we're continuing to try and bring you up-to-date COVID-19 content. Today, we're going to talk to you about what's going on in long-term care facilities, what's going on with our nursing home patients, uh, and what we could do about it with Dr. Digidio and Dr. Fung. A couple of housekeeping things. You know, we're our group, we're doing our best to produce this content and get it out to you. I want you guys to spread the word. Tell a friend, subscribe, follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever it might be. But let's let's help spread the word on on this, on some of this content because I think the main theme is trying to give you reliable stuff with a positive twist, like what we could do about all this craziness that's in front of us. So help us spread the word. We really appreciate that couple other things we got a live question and answer session with myself on april 25th at 12 o'clock you could get that on facebook live and also um we'll have the zoom link attached to the show notes i'm really looking forward to that we're just looking for a chance to really get feedback from our fans and really get a chance to provide you with the stuff that you want to hear also we have a webinar coming april 27th Featuring Dr. Digidio talking about goals of care discussions, especially during a pandemic. I think you guys will find that ultra valuable. Um, so yeah, tune into that and there will also be links to the show notes as well. Okay, episode 30, we got Dr. Digidio who's been on the show before. He's a colleague of mine working at the Ottawa Hospital. He does internal medicine and also does critical care. And Dr. F- um, Celeste Fung who is the medical director of St. Patrick's Homes at the long-term care facility. And we dive into what level of strain COVID is having on long-term care and the importance of having goals of care discussions and talking about solutions. What can we do about the challenges that are in front of us? And the thing that I found enlightening with this conversation, especially with Dr. Fung, was how many how many problems were there before COVID even hit. And so um, I hope you guys enjoyed this discussion. We really dive into to attempting to come up with solutions. So I think there's some value here. Okay, last thing. The song that you're hearing currently is called Stronger Together, written by my former classmate, Melissa Setuan out in Alberta. Beautiful song about our battle with COVID-19. So I just want to give a quick shout out to her. So without further ado, Dr. Digidio and Dr. Fung. We are bringing back Dr. Digidio, and we have the lovely Dr. Celeste Fung in the mix, quadcasting. How are you guys doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I am very good. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> I'd like to I'd like to clear up a few lies from the first podcast, if I'm I may. So, I'm so regretting this. Okay, let's I, I have been waiting for this for, what, it's been six eight months. months since yeah, that, six, six months? Well, eight months since recording, maybe. I completely beat you in an arm wrestle. That what? Goes, Don't yes. even start. Don't even trip, no. boy. This is Cheating with your arm false. in the air when we, had, we have witnesses, son. We have witnesses. I've spoken, spoken to all the witnesses. They are willing. If you have them on your podcast, they will gladly corroborate yeah, the story. I'll, we'll make this happen. Second, I expect a basically huge thank you to me for basically making your podcast completely awesome. Am I still number one on the podcast? I I refuse to answer any of these questions. I'm going to get to the point. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Okay. And I'm regretting that we're doing a video version of this so I can see your 
lovely mug. Maybe we could start with Celeste. You are medical director at St. Patrick's, and you have made some incredible measures to really advocate for your long-term care patients in terms of making sure that, you know, the goals of care are clarified and, and so forth. So can I just, can we just hear like the process that you implemented? Well, a lot of our processes aren't really new. So at St. Pat's, we've always taken a very, what we call a resident-centered approach to our care. So the aim is to understand the resident and then do what we can to help them fulfill what's important to them. And that comes in day-to-day things like they prefer to eat a certain kind of food. How can we get them that kind of food? They prefer to wake up later in the day. How can we make sure that the schedule is accommodated? So that's been in place forever. And then I think our medical staff at St. Pat's has always been very attuned to having regular goals of care conversations, understanding that for the vast majority of our residents, um, that's really their last move and we are given the opportunity to help guide them through the final chapters of their life Mm -hmm. and I think our goal has always been to be the individual who's there to help inform their decision making you know we're not there to make decisions for other people we're there to use our medical expertise to try and guide people through what they can expect try to understand what their goals are with respect to their health, and then try to give them our best suggestion of how they might be able to achieve those goals, and do our best to guide them through periods that are much more challenging where we may not be able to achieve the goals that they want, and mm-hmm. what alternative might be acceptable. But, but these, are, these are opportunities to share information as, as the experts in, in what's going on with them medically and then take their expertise about what's important to them and try to meld those two things together. Yeah. And so, I mean, sorry. No, I mean, I think all to say the, the goals of care conversations are not new for us, but I think in the context of COVID and understanding that the landscape of the entire health system was going to change, the conversations became more important in really trying to mitigate exposure of risk to the residents while simultaneously making sure that outcomes that were acceptable to them continue to be able to be achieved as best as we could. Yeah. And, and so how did you, like when we talked weeks ago, you know, you, you seem to be like, be really putting that forward. Like, you know, I don't know if it was, you know, how difficult it was to really make sure those conversations were have were had with each one of the one of your uh, patients, but it really seemed like you guys made a, a conscious effort to have the goals clear for as many patients as possible. Yeah, I mean, we're very fortunate at St. Pat's. We have a medical staff of 10 people. We do um, in-house or we do, pardon me, a closed call schedule. So it's really only our staff who are called about our residents. And, and I think that does make a big difference. We're more familiar with the nursing staff, the nursing staff are more familiar with us. And so when it came time that COVID was, you know, starting to roar through the, the conversation to say, hey, everyone just, you know, as we have always done, make sure that you approach the people who are considering transfer, explain to them you know, what the landscape might look like, that, that there may be increased risk with transfer to emerge as compared to before, that we may want to be more judicious with our use of acute care. We may want to ensure that people are just really aware of what the potential is when we're having to remove them from the home and then bring them back. And I think really trying to explain very clearly what the risks specifically related to COVID are, particularly in our population. And that was becoming more and more abundantly clear from the time the stories from Washington were coming through and then the stories from Lynn Valley. I mean, I think people were getting it in the news and I think it, from the medical staff perspective, we felt it was our, our job to inform our residents and their families about you know, where can you find reliable information for one? And two, this is what the reality of what is coming is. We're not here to make judgments about what people perceive as being 
the kind of treatment or the goals that they want. You know, mm-hmm. everybody's goals are their own goals. And, and I always say, you know, what would we all want for ourselves at the end of the day is to ensure that what I wanted for myself was actually everything was done for that to be able to happen. And, right. and I think I may not, may not share the same values as someone else and someone may not share the same values as me. And that's not, that's really not the point. The point is, I want to be able to provide the information so that you can see where your goals might fit into the landscape of what's happening right now. So we composed a letter in collaboration with our entire medical staff to really send out to the residents and families to ask them to really reflect on what their goals were. And not even just for our residents, but just for our residents' family members. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have residents who are 102. They've got kids who are 80, like... (laughs) We have family members with spouses who are, you know, elderly at risk of exposure in the community. And so it was really something that was important from a medical staff perspective to share with our families, to share with our residents that these are really important times to think about what's important to you, communicate that to the person who would decide for you in the event you weren't able to communicate it yourself, so that hopefully as long as everyone knows what your wishes are, we can hopefully make sure that that, those outcomes that are acceptable can actually transpire. Try and achieve your goals. And I I, I think what I, what I just really wanted to commend is the proactive proactiveness of, of what you guys were doing, sending out letters, making sure that this was well communicated because, you know, we've all read about, you know, how long-term care patients can, like their prognosis looks like with when dealing with COVID. And I'm thinking, G, maybe you could speak to to this a bit, like your front lines in terms of de- dealing with patients on COVID wards. You're seeing patients that are from long-term care admitted for COVID-related reasons. Like what are you seeing? And is it consistent with what you're reading about? So I have seen obviously some patients with COVID. My the last four or five weeks I've lost track of time here. I've been both in the intensive care unit and on the internal medicine ward. We've had our share of COVID positive patients. And obviously uh, we've had our share of non-COVID positive patients. The, the COVID side of things is basically, I think what we've heard about from other medical professionals is that generally speaking, the elderly and individuals who have multiple comorbidities don't do very well. There's high mortality and morbidity associated with that. The young, relatively healthy folks that I've dealt with have been discharged home or not even really uh, required admission, maybe for just monitoring for 24 hours, and they've been sent home and done very well. Mm-hmm. The, the, I guess what you and I were talking about offline is that from a long-term care perspective uh, and retirement home perspective, there's obviously still those folks that need admission to hospital for non-COVID-related reasons. And the, especially dealing with long-term care, unfortunately, what we need to remember is that whatever scoring system we're using, whether it be a, a clinical frailty score, an econ performance status, a, a PPS score, whatever it may be, we, we all know that these individuals from long-term care are incredibly frail, are incredibly weak, and I've had a lot of admissions that have progressed on to end-of-life care for non-COVID-related reasons. And what we've we've done is obviously we we haven't turned anybody away, but what we are trying to do is again establish what the what the goals of care are, and if possible, deliver end of life care at the long term care facility, and if ultimately required, we'll deliver long term care. Uh, excuse me, uh, palliative care at the at here at the hospital. Mm-hmm. Things generally speaking on the wards and the ICU, as, as you've commented on, since you're now famous and on CBC all the time, sure. is the numbers have been decent. Over the last five weeks, like I said, I've been on service. I, we haven't seen a massive surge. I'm starting to get a little bit reassured that hopefully we've missed that, that peak, but it's still obviously early. But our numbers have been great. So I'm happy about that right now. So, I mean, maybe there's a question for both of you. Like, you know, we're, we're in a kind of, this is April 17th when we're recording this. We're in a bit of, as uh, Gianni mentioned, a phase where things are okay. But we are seeing more cases of, of COVID-related spread within long-term care. Like, what, what should be the approach? Like, what, like, a, like at some point, we are going to be busier. 
potentially. I, I think we'll be busier. You know, what's your thoughts on, you know, how we should be approaching this, knowing that even you're admitted for COVID or non-COVID patients or admissions as a long-term care patient, you know, it's clear that prognosis is, is poor. Do, do we need to change our approach? So what I would comment on there is the big evolution with COVID in long-term care is really the strain that we put on our nursing services. Mm. So the vast majority of care that's being done in long-term care is assistance with ADLs. So we're talking about assistance with dressing, assistance with bathing, feeding, ambulation, portering people back and forth. Like that's like the, the big, you know, a mechanical lift transfer out of a hospital bed into a chair. Like that's the big chunk of the care that's being provided in long-term care. You know, yeah, we do monitor things like blood pressure and adjust medications and, and these kinds of things. But the, the bulk of the work is really with regards to personal care. What happens when COVID goes into a long-term care facility is that you lose a huge chunk of staff because they have to go on isolation. The other challenge in long-term care is that in some homes, we're talking about 60 to at least 80% of the population with dementia. So while there is a significant mortality associated with COVID in the elderly, it's not 100%. So what we're seeing out of Washington, what we're seeing out of Lynn Valley is that you're looking at about maybe 30, maybe in a really bad situation, 50% mortality, but that leaves you 50% of people who are infected, who have mild symptoms, who will recover, but who may also be wandering, who may also have behaviors who may have responsive behaviors that maybe they only respond to one staff member who knows how to approach them. And that staff member is now away for 14 days on isolation and you can float whoever you want in, but they may not know how to contend with getting that person dressed, helping that person get toileted. And so in addition to that, when you get a COVID outbreak in a long-term care facility, everyone is now confined to their rooms. But on a standard day, in long-term care, a ward of 32, we have one RPN and three PSWs. So that's a, that's a usual day. 32 wow. people to get up and dressed between basically four people and also pass out hundreds of medications, like just wild numbers of medications. Mm. So when you go into COVID and you lose your regular staff member who know how to get people to do things maybe a little bit quicker than someone who's just off the street, and you lose your regular nurse who knows what the pills are, can do the double check and avoid errors, then suddenly all your processes are way longer. You have to help people feed in their room. You have to gown and glove for everyone. PPE takes an enormous amount of time. Mm -hmm. And we don't even have enough PPE most of the time. Wow. So this is what's happening. This is why even on a regular day, you know, we talk about we talk about doing end of life in long-term care. And it's not that we don't have the ability to prescribe the medication. It's not that we don't have the ability to administer the medication. It's that if you talk about one RN in a building of 288 overnight, and if even you have three residents on end of life care simultaneously, that's a big workload for someone to be doing assessments, to be titrating medications, to ensure that person's comfortable, to comfort family who are frequently there with them, to help mm. them through the journey, to help the staff members through the journey. I mean, staff members in long-term care, they, they get to know these residents. They see them day in and day out. And when we lose residents, it is, it is hard on the staff. And I, I, my heart just breaks for the staff in those homes where They've seen huge mortality associated with COVID. And for them to still continue to try to show up to work, to show up for their residents, I mean, it's commendable. The, the job is so hard and they will still show up for those residents because they care that much about them. And, and I think that's where long-term care is strained, is that you add a couple extra acute people in there. You ask someone to suddenly take care of a peripheral while taking care of the tube feed, while taking care of the catheter that's come out and you're down to three RPNs overnight and one RN in 288 deaths, that's, that's a lot of stuff to be looking after. One person goes acute, one person falls, someone needs an assessment, it's, 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 it's limited. And so I think that's where long-term care really needs the support is the bodies to be able to provide the care the way we want to be able to provide it. Wow. I mean, 
I, I want to thank you, Celeste, for bringing up these points because, you know, if you do have that support, the other thing it does is it prevents people from needing transfer. Absolutely. You know, like, you know, like if, you know I, I'm thinking of, you know, especially I, I obviously have a soft spot for end of life care as a palliative care doc, but, you know, knowing that, you know, if you do have a few patients that are end of life and you don't have enough manpower to be able to do the, as you said, do the assessments and, and to be able to provide optimal care. That's, I mean, it's tragic. I mean, this has been my concern with COVID is that in the event that we are palliating large numbers of residents simultaneously, where will we get the manpower to do it in the way that we want to do it, which is, which is exceptionally. I mean, no one wants to have their end of life in any way other than in complete comfort. And, and can we really achieve that with the staffing levels that we have in the event that we go into mass palliation? And, and no one really wants to think about that outcome. And, and obviously that's not the outcome that anybody at any home wants for their home. But, but you know, it's not that we're not accustomed to end of life care, but if we are really looking at volumes of high acuity people with significant symptoms, all of whom require supportive care. Do we have the staff to do that in long-term care? And, and I, don't, I don't know. And, and do we have the staff to do it when half the staff are off because they're on isolation or sick? That becomes a huge challenge. And you might hear me speechless for a bit because it's, you know, we're all about trying to come up with solutions on this show. And I, I mean, I, do you do you see a solution? Like, do you see a way of addressing this? Like, on the news, I think I heard it on the news, they were talking about, you know, whether transferring patients to acute care while beds are empty right now would would be an option, which I, I personally think that would be a horrible idea because of, for many reasons. But, you know, are you... Are you here catching wind of any solutions or do you, or does anything come to mind? I know it's a tough question. It's, yeah, it's a huge challenge. I mean, I think, I think everyone who works in long-term care wants our residents to receive the care in their home. I mean, it's their home. And I think that's the biggest difference between acute care and long-term care is long-term care is a person's home and that's how they've been treated. They're familiar with the staff. As I said, so many suffer cognitive impairment. We know that when we transfer them to the hospital that they're going to get delirious, that they're going to be confused, maybe even more combative. Like we, we are aware of all of those risks. And I think that, you know, I don't know that displacing people and moving them into a completely different environment with caregivers who, you know, don't understand their 16-page care plan is necessarily the best solution but you know we need to keep our workforce healthy we need and and you know i think and i think that's where you know when there's any talk about being more lax with the social distancing that's where i start to get more anxious because i know that the well-being of my residents depends on the well-being of my staff and my staff still have to go home. They have to go to the grocery store. They have to feed their families. They may have to take public trans- transportation to get to and from work. I need them to stay healthy so that the residents stay healthy, so that the residents can continue to get care from the staff who know them the best. And the, the other piece to the restricting work environments, which I think is a really important infection pre- prevention and control piece, is that we lost a substantial number of our part-timers who knew our residents very well, but they went to their full-time position because obviously in this kind of the world that we're living in, you can't survive on part-time work no matter who your employer is and who your residents are. And so we are even now in the absence of COVID in our home in the midst of training people to get to know our residents. And, And so there's a huge human resource problem that's existed in long-term care for a very long time. And I think COVID has really just, you know, tipped the scales for us, really. God damn it. <laughs> this is... Sorry, it wasn't a solution. <laughs> I'm supposed um, to come up with a solution. Okay. No, no, no. I, it's just, uh, it was just, it's, 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 it's very... It's it's great to hear, like, as an acute care physician, we don't hear this side that often. You know what I mean? Like, the, really what the struggles of 
of long-term care, being involved in a long-term care facility, hearing those personal stories about like how, you know, part-time staff really connect with the patients and how they can really provide ideal care for, for the people involved. Damn. I mean, one of the things I think that's going to be paramount to all this in terms of manpower is the rapid testing. I'm doing an interview with um, the Spartan, Spartan Bioscience lead uh, or the CEO actually after this one. And hopefully that's kind of the, one of the pieces to the puzzle that will help facilitate this, like in terms of making sure that, you know, there's enough staff that you get that test within an hour, you know, they're not, they're not going to be transmitting um, COVID to the, the rest of the, the unit. Well, yeah, um, I mean, pie in the sky thinking like, let's test all our staff. Yeah. There, you know, our residents have now been sheltering in place for three weeks. They haven't gone out to the grocery store. They haven't gone on the bus. Like it's, it's, it's not, going to magically appear from them it's it's our staff who who don't want to bring COVID into the home who Mm -hmm. who don't want to bring COVID home to their loved ones and and so I think you know can could I test all my staff could I test all my staff every week like I mean I I, you know I I don't pretend to know everything about IPAC (laughs) but I think you know the 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 turnaround time for swabbing right now it makes you feel like it's so you just sit anxiously waiting your three, four days until that swab comes back all the while knowing that yes, they're isolated in their room and yes, they're on droplet contact precautions. But if it's COVID, it means that there's probably someone asymptomatically carrying it around the home for that duration until we find out that that test is back and, and there's nothing that we're able to do about it right now. Man, it's, it's it's crazy. I mean, I like I said, I hope a lot of this stuff is coming down the pipeline. It's what's going to allow us to reintegrate in general, but also provide safe care in homes. Gee, any any thoughts to either solutions or how we're going to move forward, or even you know, back to the question of when things start to get heavy, how we should be approaching these things. Yeah, the obviously there's there's no simple solution to this, but the I think one of the things that we have to consider, and I'll I'll speak wearing my program director hat for adult critical care medicine, is the issue of redeployment. We, you and I, Quad, know many people who are sitting at home, who are not working because their elective surgeries or their clinic is shut down or whatever it may be, and in the time of let's use the term disaster, the CPSO and the hospitals will allow people to practice outside their scope of practice. And there's ways of training people quickly where we can update people on, on either best practices or how to do relatively simple things to ease the burden on others, right? And that doesn't just include physicians. There's plenty of nurses, personal support workers, people who are out there who are not currently working. And I think that's the best option because the option of allowing people to stay in hospital right now, I agree with you, is completely the incorrect and I think a knee-jerk reaction and a political move. This is wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe, so first of all, fantastic point. I hate to say it. We are seeing that concept of of like redeployment in ICU. Like it's for those that uh, may may have uh, seen this, but like when we talk about how we create more capacity in ICU. Part of that is having non-ICU nurses come and help out being supervised by ICU nurses. And it's worked in other places and it's a necessary demand to be able to create capacity. Same idea here. Like, you know, the, it's true. Like a lot of this, you know, there's probably some nuance to being able to take care of some of these patients, but overall, you know, a lot of them will have that skill set to be able to brought, to provide care. You know what I'm saying? And it's not ideal, uh, exactly as Celeste was saying, you know, you formed a rapport with these patients over time. Let's be honest, we're never going to be able to replace that same PSW or that same nurse who knows the patient, but they can act as the quarterback or the expert to guide care going over there. And we've talked about this in the ICU. If we had 200 ventilators going, there's no way I'm going to be able to look after 200 ventilators, but I can have people who are obviously as not as skilled, not because of their, their, lack of, of intelligence, they just haven't dealt with a ventilator in quite some time, 
is I would overlook them. They can take care of the, the relatively straightforward things and hopefully apply the exact same technique to long-term care or palliative care if required. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. And the reason too, to think about like, I know I'm maybe sound like a broken record. You really do not as a long-term care patient, not only because it's lack of familiarity and stuff, you do not want to come to acute care. You're going to pass, pass illness on. You're going to pick up on illness. You're going to potentially, if you're going to pass, you're passing in an environment that's unnatural to that patient and not familiar. Like there's a million reasons why we shouldn't, we should do our best to not have to bring our, these patients to acute care. So, you know, all these points are very well taken. And I I mean, I agree. I think there's not many people who practice in long-term care who really feel like acute care is the best place for their resident. You know, acute care hospitals are not designed to look after frail, elderly, geriatric people. Like, you know, we, so, so I think though, the piece that I think we struggle with in long-term care and, and maybe in some homes more than others is that Sometimes I think we, so first of all, a lot of physicians who practice in long-term care really becomes a solo practice. You know, we, we have our little cohort of residents. We round on them once a week, but you don't really see a lot of other colleagues. You know, you're not, you're there on different times because we don't want to overwhelm nursing workload. And so sometimes you miss those opportunities to pick up on that, you know, that hallway conversation. Hey, this is what's going on. You know, what, you know, what do you think? How would you approach this, this, that, and the other? And so I think the struggle in long-term care sometimes is that there, there may be a need to have that support when it comes to prognosticating with families to be able to really discuss you know, what is the potential outcome if we proceed X, Y, and Z? And I think a lot of the time, while we understand sort of in a general way that there's not an awful lot that acute care can help us with in end-stage CHF and end-stage CKD and end-stage dementia, I think sometimes we lack the confidence to be able to say that with complete certainty. And in some instances, families really need to hear that, not from us, but they need to hear it from the eMERGE physician. They need to hear it from, you know, the doctor that works in the real hospital. And, and it's, it's not always for lack of having tried to have those communications, but there is always going to be a handful of people. And I think a lot of these issues boil down to trust, right? You know, do you trust the person who is communicating the care to you? And I think sometimes we as colleagues do ourselves a disservice when someone is maybe transferred to eMERGE and then the family comes back and says, well, the eMERGE doctor said, well, why did you get transferred here? Why, why would they send you out for this? And, and it's sort of trying to appreciate every person's individual context and that sometimes we're asking for help because we really need help. And maybe we need to facilitate our abilities to ask for that help and avoiding the transfer. No, absolutely. Any thoughts on that, G? Well, it, it actually, you and I will be discussing this at two o'clock and for our ICU meeting, the issue of virtual care and telemedicine, right? We want to create this where, Celeste, what you just mentioned, we are trying. So when I wear my internal medicine hat, I'm getting texts from the community, emails from people in the community who have looked after patients that have recently been inpatients. I'm answering any questions that they may have, helping them out whenever I can. And the same could easily apply to, to long-term care where, you know, someone like myself with an internal medicine and ICU background is sitting there waiting for someone exactly like yourself or one of your colleagues to call me and be like, you know what, I need a second opinion about this, or I want to run this medical question by you, or I want you to talk to this family. And that's something that we can create and hopefully we'll create pretty soon. Yeah, like we, we've been fortunate, you know, we've, we've got e-consults established in our home, which gives us one avenue to be able to access specialist advice. It's often been helpful in avoiding external appointments for residents who are extraordinarily frail and, and oftentimes will go to an appointment, can't communicate with a specialist, can't get out of their wheelchair to be examined. I mean, like the, there's a whole rigmarole around that in addition to the cost that goes to the family to try to even transport them there. But I think the, the benefit of e-consult is it's, it's convenience. It's very easy to use. It's very collegial. I think that's another piece is that sometimes 
sometimes I think you don't always know who's going to pick up the phone. Is that the nice way to say that? <laughs> and so I think that that's, that's where e-consult has really taken off is that ability to just have, you know, a, you're not catching someone in the middle of the OR, you're not catching someone in the middle of their, you know, 14th consult at eight o'clock in the morning. Like you're, you're, you're talking to someone who's had an opportunity to sit down and is looking at your question and giving you an answer. So, but I think, you know, the piece that you speak about families being able to hear that second opinion rather than just hearing it through us, that, that may be very valuable for someone to say, oh, can I, you know, would you like to speak to a doctor at the hospital and hear, you know, what they think they can and cannot do for, for your loved one based on what their wishes are? You, you know, we talk about the, like, how overwhelming COVID is and, and I, I pray that we look at some of those lessons that we could take away from that. And one of the things I think is this more e-consults or virtual consults. Like I can speak for many of us that knowing we could provide that kind of advice and care and would prevent an admission, prevent, you know, a patient being transferred, prevent them from being exposed to prevent them from being in an environment where they are not going to thrive would like step up in a heartbeat. You know what I mean? Because a lot of these cases we talked about in earlier episodes, like the tough cases, like they're demoralizing. It affects not only the patient, the family, it affects the care, healthcare teams. And this is a, a solution that where the technology is there, it's not that, it's like not that difficult to provide. The, the demand is there. People are willing to do it. I, I just think, you know, at the end of the day, whether it's COVID or not, this should be something that is in our wheelhouse. Because like I said before, you know, if we do get hit, if we do get that surge in capacity right now, like this, this is, you know, this is something we wouldn't want. We, and that would be easily fixable. Well, I shouldn't say easily. It would be potentially fixable with such strategies. Now, am I allowed to go on my rant about the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care memo? I've been trying to say, I've been trying to segue into, into it and I'm just like, when is he going to bite here? I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to. Okay. Well, right let me, let's hear what you got to say, even though it's like a non-natural sequitur. Okay. So I, I will take Celeste's point for sure. And knowing that there are long-term care facilities that I agree, we should not be transferring people back, especially if they're in the midst of an outbreak and especially if they don't have the appropriate PPE. But to, for the ministry to come out and say that, you are no longer to transfer, or they said we're asking not to transfer people to long-term care or retirement homes, which long-term care aside, retirement homes, is like how many hundreds or thousands of retirement home, homes are there? So this is, this is completely foolish, and I'll say why. The, yes, we have to, I think we have to take it on a case-by-case -case basis. Right now, we're at, the ministry in their memo said we're at about, whatever, 60% capacity across Ontario, which is actually excellent. We've, you and I both know we're literally at 100, 110% capacity every day before COVID hit, right? So for them to say, now we're going to keep people in hospitals completely wrong, and it takes away from good clinical judgment. For instance, today, I'm on internal medicine. As I told you before this started, I've completely disregarded this memo from the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. I'll give you an example as a gentleman, not to disclose any personal health information. He came in for a problem. His problem is fixed. He's completely independent, completely cognitively intact, COVID negative, which we swabbed. His re retirement home is, does not have an outbreak. His retirement home is willing to take him back. He wants to go back. How is it that I can keep this man in hospital, expose him to ongoing risk in hospital when every single individual or party involved agrees the best place for him is his retirement home? So I discharged him. 20 minutes ago, literally while we were on this podcast, I'm on Epic and I'm saying he can be discharged. And, right? and, I, and I don't, I don't disagree. I think that there's, I think what COVID is teaching us is that, you know, every choice we're making is basically a giant risk assessment, taking into account the entire landscape of what's going on out everywhere. And I think what's happening with COVID is that things are literally changing every hour. My risk assessment changes every day for the same individual. 
So my other work is in a convalescent care program where people are supposed to be transitioning home and they're living in a long-term care facility. They're living in an institutionalized setting. There's certain inherent risks that come with sharing care providers. You want to send them home, but if they've got no informal support to get them any food, if they've got three steps to get in and they can't walk on their left leg and they've got no one who lives with them, like where's the risk assessment? It's not going to do anyone any good if I fire you home only for you to land back in the eMERGE like 24 hours later. And so I think what COVID is teaching us is that we're not that nimble on our feet, which is what's led to a lot of these giant ministry directives. At the same time, long-term care has been lacking that direction that's been valuable from an IPAC perspective forever. I mean, you're, as, an, as a nonprofit individual home, we have to create our own IPAC. And it lands on top of the DOC's already 8 million tasks to, in addition to coordinate an IPAC program. Infection and then you controls look at, IPAC, sorry. Just yeah, sorry. And then, and then, you know, you look at smaller homes, you know, where, where are people supposed to be pulling these resources from? And so, and then, you know, the PPE issue is a, is a whole other piece. But I, I think that, I agree. I think that there's certainly appropriate discharges. And, and I think for the most part, Everyone wants their residents home. We all know that the better place for them is at home. But certainly when these kind of sweeping directives come out, you know, it usually takes a couple of days for people to catch up on what the purpose of it is. And I'm not here to, to say that long-term care is not a priority, but at the same time, I've got to take uh, a minute to advocate for the people and patients that are suffering from this and, and getting into what we call triage already. We, we've already... Well, the ministry and, and the province and healthcare workers already said, you know, the elective cancers, the elective triple A's, the elective vasculars, they're not a priority right now. Now at 60% capacity, I have a hard time saying that we can't accommodate some of these triple A's because again, as an intensivist, an elective triple A will spend maybe one or two days in the ICU, then maybe another two or three days. Yeah, sorry, sorry. We'll, we'll spend a total of, let's say, five days in hospital, right? This, if this aneurysm ruptures, which they are incredibly high risk of rupturing during this time, that, well, obviously your mortality is hugely increased, but the amount of time that you're going to spend in ICU and hospital has not gone from five days now. It has gone from five days to weeks, if not months, in hospital with profound morbidity associated with that, not, not, not even getting into mortality, right? And I'm here to, to, and I've discussed this with a lot of my colleagues, you look at organ transplantation, made the surgeries that we mentioned, there's got to be a time now that we have to start saying, again, we can't just blanket and say they're all canceled. We've got to start ramping these up. And again, it's contingent. I'm, I'm not naive that obviously we need appropriate PPE and whatever else, but the, the hospital occupancy rate, we're at that point where we can, I think, safely start saying we should start doing some of this because it's, it's a trade-off and it's an hour by hour thing. If we see things get crazy with COVID again, obviously we can scale back, but there's got to be a time where we got to start saying, "Hey, we got we got to start pushing through these." Yeah, and the the thing, if we are saying no to patients being transferred out, like our capacity to be able to provide care for these these elective cases or these 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 patients that need it's it can be it's gonna be non-existent. Be, exactly, that's where it'll just all fall apart again. You know, and we meet we meet on a daily basis on internal medicine right now with five or six staff daily. We run three CTU teams. There's two consult, excuse me, four or five CTU teams, two consult teams. So we meet on a daily basis and every single attending physician has said, we will be full within a matter of days to a week if we cannot get people from not only long-term care, but retirement homes back home, we will be full. This is, this and, is and very concerning. And I agree that there's a significant capacity issue, but I think that capacity issue is system-wide. And I think, I think I, I, I don't disagree with you. The case of someone who is completely independent, cognitively intact, avail, able to perform their own care, not interacting frequently with, you know, someone who knows to wash their hands before they eat. Like, I don't, I don't think that's the person who's at risk. I think that, where we're struggling in long-term care and and in retirement homes. So retirement home is a completely different bag of 
tricks. We're talking about a lot of overflow from long-term care wait lists has gone into retirement homes. We're, we're talking yes. about people with high needs, high personal yeah, so support requirements. And I think in those instances, there's the same risk there yeah. with the lack and of lack of PPE. Celeste, you know this, I'm just going to say it for my viewers. You and I both know at retirement homes, you could be anywhere from basically completely independent to assisted living, which is essentially almost at a long-term care type of level, right? Like the, Absolutely. the, you can, the amount there's of... A, there's a huge... Yeah, yeah you, can, you can be in a retirement home because you just don't feel like cooking and cleaning for yourself yeah. anymore, yep. which really I would move in there soon. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think that you can also be in a retirement home because you need... You know, you need two people to help you get up in the morning. You need yeah. someone to dress you in the morning. You need someone to help feed you. Like you can also be in a retirement home requiring that amount of care, which means those same two people have to help other people have to help other people. And if you think the staffing is low in a long-term care facility, you know, you can, you can ask how the staffing is in, in some of these retirement homes. They're, they're not, yeah, I, they're certainly not any better. And the, not that this has always existed previous to COVID is when we are discharging someone to or transferring someone back to or re or initiating a transfer to retirement home or long-term care, we always make sure that their care needs can be met, right? Like this, this has not changed because of COVID. That's it. And this I, is the risk uh, assessment, right? This is the risk yeah, assessment yeah. piece of it is that each individual situation you have to communicate. And, and I mean, this is the yes. other piece that I think we're learning in this health system is that for some reason, despite all our technology, despite all our phones being on our bodies all the time, we still don't do transitions in care that well. I mean, I think I can speak for a lot of community physicians getting discharge summaries and trying to decipher who was the person who looked after the person and who can I call to get information about what exactly happened and why is this medication started or so? I mean, Crazy. I think we, transitions in care remain the highest risk periods for all of our patients. And I think it goes both ways. I think it goes both ways that, you know, the number of times I read an eMERGE report, patient appeared with no documentation and we're like, what? What do you mean they appear with no documentation? We sent like a giant folder with them. What happened to, you know, and I, and I think with all the technology we have, we still somehow find a way to screw this up. So, so I pick think, up the phone. <laughs> well, and then the question becomes, well, who do I, you know, no, pick no, up the I'm phone? saying we pick up, not, no, not you. Like that's not, it's not on you to say like to chase us down, but if, you know, I think most of us, if, if you got somebody that's been in hospital for a reasonable period of time and have had multiple issues in hospital, especially then pick up the phone to the care team that's receiving the, the patient saying, this is what's been going on. Like, I think, you know, we are a texty, like texty society now. And that for some reason doesn't gets intimidated by having a, conversations with colleagues but like I, I think a lot of the solutions would be in picking up the phone and talking to the the, the, the healthcare team that's receiving the patient you know um, absolutely and doing shared risk assessment I mean yeah. just like you said yeah. Gianni like phoning the DOC and saying what's your situation over here this is the situation over here what can you do what do you right, have do you have the supplies you need so, you know, I think that the, the communication piece is so key. And I think that's what we've learned in COVID like altogether is that you've got to communicate with people. You've got to be transparent. You've got to be proactive and not reactive. And I think, yep. you know, trying to track an attending down five days later when they're not on service anymore, because that's when I was next in the home and last saw the report, you know, like this, this is a huge challenge. How, how can we do that better? How can we be better in transitions? And let me just to put one more plug in for this, I guess, if you want to call it the virtual consult and the face-to-face -face consult, I'll give you a story that literally just I had over the last couple of days, individual from long-term care, advanced age, mid nineties, advanced dementia, not eating over the last month, not eating zero intake, basically over the last three to seven days, febrile, very frail. There was a lot of dynamics from the family as well that played into a transfer to hospital. And I think after multiple different communications with, with multiple different physicians, family eventually agreed to palliative care, which was the most appropriate thing for this, for this patient. Not to say that a virtual consult would have completely eliminated that, but one of the factors in that was 
the family needed to hear from another physician, like outside of the long-term care home, right? So if I have the opportunity or quad being a palliative care doc and intensivist, me doing internal medicine, intensive care, seeing the individual, getting that history from the, from the nursing home, nurses that know the patient, the physician that knows the patient, and in fact, speaking of the family as well, I think we could have prevented that admission. And ultimately, the family even said, well, we want her back to long-term care because that's where she's most comfortable. And I'm not even joking that the, I said, I will get her back there. I will do everything in my power to get her back there. And as I was doing that, the memo came from the, the ministry saying, you cannot transfer people back, right? So it's heartbreaking. They were devastated by that, but I think it can be prevented. And I think the, ultimately the care for everyone improves. And I mean, I think we've seen this in every health system analysis is that people are better off cared for at home. So we talk yes. about ramping up our home care services. We talk about distance CHF management. We talk about distance COPD management. People do better at home and that includes long-term care, but there are capacity issues that really have to be addressed within yep. long-term care. Yeah, and the, just to give you a sense, again, I'm not saying that I would have discharged this patient or sent the patient back if there was an outbreak or resource issues. The care home was more than willing, as you've said, if this is not a, a, you know, a, a discharge barrier from the care home. The care home was happy to accept the resident back. Family wanted the resident back. I know for a fact that she would have been more comfortable there as well. There is no doubt. Anytime, and we all know this, anytime an individual with dementia sees a familiar face, it, it is better than any drug whatsoever that I can deliver to them. Right. And again, for the, for the ministry to come out with this just blanket statement is, is nonsensical. Yeah, it's, it's too bad. But, you know, I think conversations like this, people with greater influence than us seeing things at the front lines and how it's inf- impacting uh, care. I, I, I honestly, I don't think this is going to be su- sustained. You know, like I, I think no, it's, it can't be. No, yeah, and like I, not, I really, I really do think that the driving, the driving message in that, in that memo was really more related to the movement of ALC beds into long-term care. That, that's my gut feeling about where that really was derived from. I don't think the intention was truly to, to stop existing residents of long-term cares and retirement homes from being able to return to their home, but certainly there's there's lots of places who are seeking clarification on that because, because yeah, it's not clear. That's, homes, it is true. homes want their residents home. They do. They want to have the PPE to be able to bring them home safely for all the other residents, but they do want them home. I think it, the vast majority. And, and so I think, I think I'm hoping that there's going to be further clarification. My, my feeling was that was really stemming from the churn that was trying to push ALC into long-term care and really not having the capacity specifically the PPE to be able to manage that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I got to say, this has been awesome. You know, I think, you know, this conversation, you know, I think, you know, we talked about trying to like, you know, clarify goals of care. We talked about protecting staff, what it's like being taking care of patients in long-term care. Cause I think a lot of people don't have a full appreciation of the demands that staff are having, especially at this time. And just, you know, talking about what, how we can address this, talking about, you know, re- redeploying, implementing some more virtual contacts. I think it's, you know, this, this has been a really good conversation. Two questions before we, we shut down. Celeste, can you think of any time in during this COVID era, it could even be, you know, um, before COVID era where, you know, a care, a caregiver has really made a difference just because I think once again, we, it's, we don't personalize this very much. Like we always often, we're always thinking about, yeah, this patient here, this patient there, this demented patient there, but is there anything off the top of your head where, you know, an interaction with either yourself or you, that you saw from a team member uh, really stuck, stuck with you? Our, so our caregivers are phenomenal. They, they come to work. They are, they can, they have enormous hearts. They sometimes take some 
have some horrible things said to them by people with advanced dementia who obviously are not intending to hurt that individual, but you know, our caregivers, they have been hit, they have been called all kinds of horrible names, and, and they are expected to continue to provide the care, to reapproach, to, to use all non-pharmacological measures before they reach for pharmacological measures. I've seen, you know, and, and this is such the tragedy with universal masking and, and you know, seating people far apart in the dining room. You know, these routines are what allow a lot of our residents with cognitive impairment to, to have quality of life. And now to have to see their caregivers with, you know, their eyes up only, you know, to be reticent, to have physical touch because we're all supposed to be two meters apart from other. I mean, these are the things that allow our caregivers to provide comfort to people who, who suffer in a lot of ways in their day-to-day life. And I think our caregivers make the difference by understanding their residents, understanding their nuances, understanding when someone's about to get irritated and moving them to somewhere else, giving them something else to do, trying to keep them distracted, trying to connect them to their loved ones, running around with iPads to try to FaceTime family members, bringing them down for a window visit so their family can stand out in the snow and wave to them through a window. I mean, these are the things that our staff are trying to do every day to try to optimize the quality of life that people have in the time that they have left. And, and so, you know, our caregivers are unbelievable. They're, they're the heroes in, in, in our books in long-term care. They, they show up, they do the hard work every day and they keep showing up and they care so much for our residents. It's, it's unreal to, it, it, you know, it's, it's, really, it's really a privilege to see how people can look after vulnerable people with such love and, and attention and, and, and genuine, genuine care. It's, it's great. Like almost like re, re like makes you believe in uh, humanity again. I know, cause I know G doesn't have any faith in humanity. Um, hey, I'll, I'll share a story and okay. Okay. it's hard to follow. It's hard to follow Celeste's story there. I was going to be like, I got I'll for sure edit story. this out by the way, cause I know it's going to be. No, no, I swear. Again. I so no, no, this is, this is a touching story. Seriously. I had a lady who I looked after in the ICU who was highly functioning beforehand. And this kind of brings us a whole separate story about consequences of ICU care. You know, a lady in her late 80s, septic, spent six days in the ICU, never fully recovered cognitively and physically, despite being a robust 86-year-old beforehand. Uh, eventually, and then I inherited her care on the, the ward afterwards because I transitioned from ICU to internal medicine and was clearly progressing on the end of life care. Her uh, daughter, unfortunately, during this time, for whatever reason, we couldn't get her to hospice. I can't remember if it was a, it was an, oh, because we were on outbreak here. So we couldn't get her to, to hospice. Home was proving to be a difficult challenge because there was no PPE in the community for home palliative care and for the Lynn services to go in. And the daughter said that her ultimate goal was to die at home. And we made it happen. We trained the daughter and the granddaughter on medical medicine, or excuse me, med administration. The caveat to this is that we knew this patient was going to pass within 24, 48 hours. Mm-hmm. They were able to deliver around-the-clock care between three separate family members. We managed to arrange transportation to bring the patient up to a second-floor apartment. And this required sort of four hours of a physician's work, social worker who went above and beyond what he was expected to do. Everybody pulled together and managed to get this lady home to basically... to. W- her what her goals were and we managed to achieve her goals Um, and that made me very proud to work here and to work with these individuals because that that was just great well look at you stepping up yeah feeling like uh (laughs) okay now let me go on my other rants we got time for it but i'm just kidding no yeah i mean Um, i really and really i think the thing that is so rewarding about working with this population is that you can actually achieve goals they might be small goals but you can achieve them and i mean i think that's what drives our continued perseverance i guess in in the field that we're in yeah 
No, that's, that's, that's a wonderful and a, a nice way to end this all. So I want to thank you, Celeste and Gianni, for your contributions. I think this is, this is amazing. And well, I want to thank Celeste more than I thank Gianni, for sure. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your contributions in this annoying battle with COVID. You guys are all doing your part. And, but no, hearing these kind of stories, you know we're going to get through this. All right. Thanks, you guys. Take care, everyone. Thanks, Claude. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I hope that was useful for you guys. Please leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at Quadcast. Please don't hesitate to subscribe, whether it's on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We really appreciate your support. Leave a five-star rating if you're up to it. I want to thank our sponsors, BetterHelp and Audible for their support. As you may have seen, we're continuing to do some webinars on not just COVID-19 content, but other content just to give you an opportunity for some Q&A. So stay tuned for that. Please sign up when available. I want to thank our team at Solving Healthcare, continuing to produce amazing show notes. We're going to start a newsletter soon. Social media team, we really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Quadcast listeners, stay healthy, stay home, and remember, we'll get through this. Take care, everybody.